on or off. The status of the Trump-Kim summit is anybody's guess right now. Plus, did Rudy Giuliani just reveal the Trump strategy for combating the Mueller probe? And more than 1,000 immigrant children are missing after the U.S. government loses track of them. Seriously. This is the State of America Tonight. Just four days ago, President Trump called the summit off. Now it seems that the United States and North Korea are essentially racing to set this back up. We want the North Koreans to dismantle their arsenal. Ultimately, I remain convinced that he does not want to denuclearize. In fact, he will not denuclearize. It is for public opinion because eventually the decision here is going to be impeach, not impeach. They are telling us exactly what they're doing, but that doesn't make it right. This is Memorial Day 2018. Take a minute and remember those who have given all. We will never forget our heroes. Hello, everyone. I'm John Avalon, live in New York. And to our viewers watching around the world, this is the State of America. All right, game on, or maybe we should say summit on, at least for right now. It's all enough to give us a case of presidential whiplash. So President Trump, after abruptly canceling his face-to-face with Kim Jong-un and then changing his mind 24 hours later, said this over the weekend. We're doing very well in terms of the summit with North Korea. So we're looking at June 12th in Singapore. That hasn't changed. And it's moving along pretty well. So we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. Those comments came as a team of U.S. officials touched down on the North Korean side of the DMZ to Sunday. Their goal is to hammer out the substance of the talks. And President Obama's former director of national intelligence says he hopes the meeting goes forward. I think there's, me- there's value having gone this far. There's value in meeting and greeting, gripping and grinning, and just uh, establishing uh, a rapport. I I think, yes, I think it would be important to have the summit. Now, for his part, the president says denuclearization is still his main focus. But Senator Marco Rubio says, don't hold your breath waiting for Kim Jong-un to do just that. Ultimately, I remain convinced that he does not want to denuclearize. In fact, he will not denuclearize, but he wants to give off this perception that he's this open leader, that he's peaceful, that he's reasonable. And while a peaceful, reasonable leader may be what Kim Jong-un wants the world to think, most of us would probably go with unpredictable or unorthodox, to say the least. And that's where he and President Trump may have something in common. Here again is former Obama National Intelligence Chief James Clapper. This is typical North Korean, uh, you know, one step back, two steps forward, one step back. That's what they, they always do. And in some ways, Kim Jong-un may have met his match here with uh, very, our very unconventional president. So is the Trump-Kim summit on, off, or somewhere in between? CNN Michelle Kaczynski joins me now from the State Department to help make heads or tail of all of this. Michelle, is this a carefully calibrated dance or is it chaos? Hey, John, stay tuned. Back to you, John. 
<laughs> Just kidding. Well, you laid it out very well there. I mean, you, you have people kind of, I, I don't want to say on both sides of the issue, because I don't know that there's anybody that doesn't want to see this happen and progress be made. Uh, but there's been a lot of confusion, to say the least. There have been mixed messages in capital letters. I mean, remember last week, one day, a White House aide told reporters in person that June 12th was just going to be too soon. They, they described June 12th as being 10 minutes from now. Yeah. And then immediately after, you have the president saying, oh, yeah, we're, we're on course. We're moving forward with the goal still of June 12th. So now that you have two U.S. teams in the region, one of them went to discuss substance in the demilitarized zone, another logistical team right now in Singapore, ready to talk to the, the nitty gritty of how this meeting is going to go down with the North Koreans. Although, remember, it was only two weeks ago, same kind of team showed up in Singapore and were flat out stood up by the North Koreans. Now, though, they seem to have gotten that initial cold feet, if you want to sort of flippantly call it that, out of their systems. You had the, the breakup letter from President Trump going to Kim Jong-un, and then both sides coming back together and saying, okay, well, you know, maybe there's a way to salvage this. We both want this to happen. Now we see very strongly the president wanting this to happen. He's pushing his teams to make this happen. We know the North Koreans also want it. So it looks like things are on track. Big question, are they going to get past the fundamental differences of what does denuclearization mean for this to actually take place, John? Michelle, fascinating. Drama and beneath that, style and substance. We appreciate it. Thank you. Now, from a delicate dance abroad to one here at home. Rudy Giuliani is once again on the airwaves, making his case in the court of public opinion. Now, as it turns out, that is all by design. Here's what Giuliani told CNN's Dana Bash this weekend. This is an intentional <laughs> strategy to undermine the investigation, knowing that they, they the uh, investigators, the special counsel, it's their policy not to talk, but you are very free to and, and, and are very aggressive about doing so. Well, I mean, they're, they're giving us the material. Eventually, the decision here is going to be impeach, not impeach. Members of Congress, Democrat and Republican, are going to be informed a lot by their constituents. So our jury, is the, as it should be, is the American people. That is fascinating. And that wasn't the only revelation from former New York City mayor. When it comes to two of the main issues Mueller's investigating, collusion between the Russians and the Trump campaign, and whether the president has obstructed justice, Giuliani opened up about which charge makes him more nervous. The collusion part, we're pretty comfortable with because there has been none. The obstruction part, I'm not as comfortable with. I'm not. The president's fine with it. He's innocent. Uh, I'm not comfortable because it's a matter of interpretation, not just hard and fast, true, not true. Rudy Giuliani also said he thinks the Mueller investigation is no longer legitimate. An opinion we're guessing Republican Congressman Devin Nunez probably shares. Now, as you may know, De Nunez chairs the House Intel Committee, and he's been accused by more than some of his colleagues of trying to back-channel with the White House on all things related to the Russia probe. Now, his actions may be impacting his ability to fundraise in his re-election bid, at least in his home district. A new report shows that just 2% of the money Devin Nunez has raised from individual donors comes from his district, while a third comes from out of state. But Nunez will be getting a high-profile assist next month when Ivanka Trump comes to town to campaign for him. 
Nunez is one of eight California Republicans in that now deep blue state who Democrats are targeting in the midterms. And now to a startling admission from the Trump administration, which is acknowledging that it lost track of immigrant children during the last three months of 2017. In all, nearly 1,500 children are currently unaccounted for after being placed in the homes of sponsors, usually people who close ties with children. Now, one top official with the Department of Health and Human Services says, quote, the government is, in his words, not legally responsible once those children are released from the office that oversees their care. And at a Senate hearing last month, that same official, Stephen Wagner, said this. Is there a pursuit to try to figure out where they are or what happens next? There is not a pursuit. Uh, we give uh, DHS uh, visibility on where the uh, child has been placed. But um, once we provide that information, then uh, we don't have a mechanism for tracking down the uh, kids. Wagner added that the department is now taking a look at who should be responsible for those kids, adding that more resources will be needed if it falls to his agency. But one Democrat on the Homeland Security Committee says it is time for Congress to step up, telling CNN she plans to call for a hearing. We can't allow this to happen. This is not what our country stands for. If we can't protect minor children who are fleeing violent circumstances, they don't, they don't want to leave their home, but they're being forced to. And we should uh, be a beacon for people. The plight of these missing children has drawn increased scrutiny in the wake of reports that immigrant children are being separated from their parents at the U.S. border. Still ahead. Canceled one day, back on the next, maybe? Does the White House even know if the Trump-Kim meeting is happening? Is all of this part of a grand plan? Our panel weighs in next. Now, it's not every day that a government actively prepares for a summit that's been officially called off. And yet, that's the confused state surrounding the potential Trump-Kim talks. Are things going according to the plan? Is there a plan? The all-star panel tonight, Elliot Ackerman, CNN, CNN national security analyst and a former Marine Corps captain. Paris Denard, CNN political commentator and a member of President Trump's re-election campaign advisory board. Karen Demersion, a CNN political analyst and congressional reporter at The Washington Post. And Max Boot, CNN global affairs analyst and a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. Max, given the CFR status, I'm going to begin with you. Is this strategy or is this chaos? I think what this really is, John, is a soap opera or a reality show as the peninsula turns and every single day there is a fresh plot point and the plotter in chief, that would be President Trump, wakes up and thinks of some new twist that day. I mean, he's gone from in early March to suddenly accepting the summit uh, with no preparation and then within a month saying that it was going to be a success and that Kim was a great guy and that he's going to denuclearize and then last week calling it off and now he's acting like he never called it off in the first place. So this is the most bewildering and incoherent display of diplomacy I've ever seen. It certainly does not engender any confidence in the Trump administration or the United States. But if I had to take a bet at this point, I would say it sounds like the summit will probably happen. The summit will probably happen. Paris, as the Trump surrogate, uh, do you believe that this is really Donald Trump trying to show Kim he has met his match, that that old bluster and sable rattling won't fly with this president? Well, sure. Listen, the pr President Trump is a different type of leader. And for so many years, Kim Jong-un and, and, and North Korea has thought that they can just say what they want and, and have these uh, statements and, and these, these exercises, and they go unchecked. 
with President Trump. He said, uh, I'm going to let you know that we are not going to tolerate your actions. If you want to meet, let's meet. If you don't cooperate, I'll call off the summit. He called off the summit, and what did we see what happened? Kim Jong-un said, wait a minute, this guy is showing that he's serious. He's willing to call off the summit, so he's playing ball again. I think it would be a huge miscalculation on the part of the North Koreans if they think that this president is somehow bluffing or not serious or does not have a strategy. The president is serious about this. He wants it to happen, not just for North Korea, but the entire world, because we are going to be better off with having this summit and having something substantive, substantive come from the summit. All right. So, Elliot, what Paris is arguing basically is we shouldn't have whiplash. This is a president with backbone, not bluster. Do you think it is practical as a former member of the U.S. government to, the, to think that we can get a substantive summit together by June 12th? You know, I, th- I think, and you know, and as Paris and Max have, have both mentioned, I mean, listen, there's there's a lot of madness going on right now, and uh, and it's very difficult to discern exactly what all of these signals mean. But the question is, is there going to be a method behind the madness? And the method is, you know, getting that summit and ultimately getting an agreement out of that summit uh, that is going to be in the best interest of the United States. And so, I don't think any of this is going to matter if the end result is positive for the U.S. But if the end result isn't positive for the U.S., all we're going to be left with is what looks like an extremely messy process and it'll be difficult to know how we go forward you know if we don't wind up with some type of substantial agreement at the end of this that's a valuable reality check and karen let me ask you this um you cover congress are are members of congress particularly the senate that some of them have been skeptical about uh kim's willingness to denuclearize is there a concern still that trump may be freelancing a little too much or is there a belief that you know what he's finally talking to kim in terms he understands it's interesting because the president is getting some accolades from certain members, especially the GOP, uh, for for keeping Kim on his toes, for switching up the play. Yes, it's on. Now it's off. Then it's back on again. But it keeps things unstable and that that's not something that the North Korean leader is used to anticipating for the United States. So he's getting some credit there. But at the same time, there's a lot of concern that this summit has become an end in itself. And that if that's the case and the president, President Trump, really wants to get to this point where he's the first U.S. president in decades to be able to say, I got to this meeting, that that may be giving away too much to a North Korean leader who has not necessarily signed on the dotted line and agreed to give up his nukes. And having that moment of the photo op with the leader of the free world elevates him in a way that he maybe hasn't earned yet. Um, there's also concern that the president in talking about, oh, you know, all this denuclearization, that we think that they may be willing to open up the subject. We don't know yet what the North Koreans are thinking from their side of the fence. And if, they, if to them, denuclearization means that we also don't use our bombers to be able to uh, deliver anything to that peninsula, it could be a much bigger um, handshake than that North Koreans mm. are uh, seeking than we are actually anticipating handing over. So this, uh, there's a lot of concern that this is happening so fast that they can't possibly What's work out a lot problem? of these details and that in the, in the, the end game, they will end up just kind of giving the North Korean leader the moment that he wanted without necessarily that much to show for it. Right. I Paris, think that's, that's, Paris, that's the, go ahead. Go, go ahead, Max. It's fine. Go ahead. I was just going to say that's the key point. I mean, I think what's happened the last few days is that, uh, you know, Trump uh, pulling out of it has made clear that the North Koreans really do want the summit to take place. But just because they want the summit to take place, 
doesn't mean they are prepared to make the kind of massive denuclearis denuclearization concessions that President Trump wants. What, what Kim Jong-un wants is he basically wants to string the United States along. He wants to be seen as the equal of the U.S. on the world stage, and he wants to see sanctions being relaxed. Yeah. And in return for doing that, he wants to do the minimal possible, whereas Donald Trump wants to see this, has these maximalist objectives. It's got to be stronger than the Iran nuclear deal, which I think is very unlikely to be Which met. is tricky. Now, Paris, let me go to you quickly. You served in the Bush administration, freedom agenda and foreign policy. A lot of President Trump's talk to Kim has been about essentially making them a protectorate. There will be prosperity. There will be continuity if you denuclearize. Presumably that also means that, you know, human rights has been undiscussed and gulags still exist in North Korea. Does that trouble you as a principled conservative? Well, I will tell you that we don't know all that has been that is going to be on the table. We know that the release of the uh, the three hostages was an important step when you look at human rights. And so I believe that there are people in the government and people in the administration, specifically the Trump administration, who want uh, to have that on the table. So, no, I'm not concerned that human rights will not be a part of the conversation just because we're not revealing the Trump administration, not revealing every single thing to the news media as it relates to what's going to happen at this summit, which is the first step towards having peace in the North Korean policy. Notably missing a date, but thank you all. Stick around. We've got more coming up. Now, we're on this day. On reflecting on America's fallen soldiers, we will look at how war has changed for the United States over the last century and those we've lost. Stay with us. From privilege and from poverty, they were generals and privates, captains and corporals of every race, color, and of every creed. But they were all brothers and sisters in arms. And they were all united then, as they are united now forever, by their undying love of our great country. That was U.S. President Donald Trump delivering remarks about Memorial Day, a time when U.S. presidents traditionally talk about sacrifice and honoring fallen heroes. But a few hours earlier, Mr. Trump's Memorial Day message was anything but traditional. In a tweet, he wrote that those who died for our country would be proud of America's economic strength and low unemployment rate. Now, Trump often touts the economy as a way of proving what a great job he is doing as president. CNN editor-at-large Chris Saliza said Trump found a way to put the me in Memorial Day. Let's get back to the panel for their reaction. Thank you all and welcome back. Paris, this is another case of teleprompter Trump versus Twitter Trump. Which is the real guy and how could he step on such an obvious note as Memorial Day by bragging about the economy? Well, I think uh, we saw President Trump uh, in his tweet and at the event that was marking a Memorial Day, uh, someone who understands the sacrifice of uh, all of the soldiers who passed away in our Gold Star families. And it's not lost on him because his own chief of staff is a Gold Star uh, family member with his own son uh, uh, dying on the battlefield in 2010 in Afghanistan. I think what the president did in his tweet was talk about the fact that the, the, the Americans who died uh, in battle they died for our freedoms. They died for us to have sure. peace and prosperity at home. 
And one of the uh, aftermaths of peace and prosperity is having a strong economy, is having a Congress and the freedom to have a Congress who can make laws and a president that can sign laws that can produce well, okay, this prosperity. OK, before we get, get, get too far down on that, you actually bring up an interesting point, because famously after 9-11, President Bush said that Americans could go shopping. And Elliot Ackerman, who's with us today, has a great essay in The Daily Beast, where, full disclosure, I'm editor in chief, about what our gener- his generation has learned in Iraq and Afghanistan. And Elliot, I wonder if you'd speak to that question, that question of larger shared sacrifice and maybe the lack of it. Yeah, I know. First of all, to what you know, we were saying with, you know, with President Trump's remarks, I mean, I think it's tough to get indignant about it just because it's sort of like, you know, my uh, a friend of mine has a saying, you know, you don't go to the hardware store for milk. I mean, of course, Trump is going to give us a statement that talks about his achievements. It's what he always does. So, um, but I think what's interesting about his remarks is actually the segment that was just played in the intro. You know, it's all in the past tense. It's all national sacrifice in the past tense. It's all they came from all walks of life in the past tense. And I think what's you know been concerning with these wars is you know these wars have been structured in such a way, meaning the post 9/11 wars, where they've been fought by an all-volunteer military, and they've been financed largely by deficit spending and no new taxes. So in effect, they've been engineered so we have decoupled national sacrifice from our war making. And decoupling those two is extremely dangerous, and it has right now changed how we traditionally used to make war. For instance, during the Civil War, the Second World War, or even the Vietnam War, where we had a draft. And what are the implications of that? Um, and we don't speak too much about the implications of that. No, we don't. And, and one of the points you make is, is that there's not, because there's not enough shared sacrifice across society, there's not bonds and said deficit spending. And, and the volunteer army has a ironic uh, and perhaps unfortunate sideline. I'm going to throw up a quick full screen. 80% of current soldiers serving come from families that have served. Uh, that is extraordinary, but it speaks to an isolation of the military experience. And, Karen, I wonder from your perspective covering Congress, um, if we are seeing a continued diminution of congressmen who've served, there are notable and honorable exceptions, of course, but is this less of a common bond that maybe leads some folks to treat these military engagements as something side rather than a focal point of our policy? Well, I mean, this has always been a, a, a push and pull of how much do we say we honor the troops versus actually, you know, substantively do that. Um, yeah, you have fewer veterans in Congress now than you used to. Um, that's just a generational shift that's, I think, happened across the country. Um, you know, you're seeing it in terms of people trying to take take note of, of, of making sure that you take care of those who serve. In uh, efforts now, there's a, a big effort to replenish funding for the military there's a whole side debate over what that means budget-wise, but a big part of that is increasing pay for military families mm-hmm. and making sure that people who do um, do enlist are actually, you know, taken care of. But yeah, I mean, this is this is uh, there there is less immediate personal connection, I suppose, for many of the representatives. You still have plenty of people who served in Iraq, served in Afghanistan, sure. are voices that are actually, you know, speaking very, very personally to their personal experience and that of their comrades as well when it comes to talking about these matters of policy. But generally speaking, um, this is this is a split that we've seen from the greatest generation to now. It's just it doesn't touch every it's every different. nuclear family the way that it used Max. to in, in many ways in the country. I just want to get in Max Booth quickly. Max, is this part of a problem of these endless wars? Is part of the problem baked in the cake of the policy and the lack of a defined mission? 
Well, John, I mean, I think this is kind of like our version of the Indian Wars, which went on for hundreds of years and didn't have a clear defined outcome like World War II or uh, the handful of other major wars in our history. But to get back to the point about uh, the lack of veterans in Congress, I mean, I think that does have an impact on the, on the nature of our politics because the fact that you had so many greatest generation World War II vets in Congress in the 50s and 60s allowed Congress to tackle some of these monumental problems in our country yes. like uh, racial discrimination, like the lack of health care, a lot of these other issues and come together in a way that's very hard to do now. And I think, you know, unfortunately, the president himself contributes to this corrosion of our national ethic with this very toxic partisanship. I mean, you put one one tweet up there about how he was using today nice. to basically tout himself. But he also was constantly today and, and in previous days, constantly attacking Democrats in very demagogic terms. And well, I think that's really I the leave it there. what the greatest generation fought for. I think that's an, an interesting point about the, the unity that's created by national service. Thank you all very much. And on this Memorial Day, I want to give tributes to the men and women who gave their lives to preserve freedom for all Americans. Now, in Washington today, some of the dwindling number of veterans of the Second World War honored their fallen comrades at the World War II Memorial. Tens of thousands of service members, many from the Vietnam era, paid their respects in the Rolling Thunder motorcycle tribute, honoring those killed and missing in action. And a new addition to the Washington Mall today, a transparent wall packed with red poppies. More than 645,000 flowers are inside each one, signifying an individual who gave the ultimate sacrifice in the hundred years since World War I. We want to end our show today with a thank you to the families who have borne the burden of wars, especially in this century. When President Abraham Lincoln wrote to a mother during the U.S. Civil War, whose five sons were believed to have been killed in action, he offered, quote, the thanks of the Republic they died to save. May assuage the anguish of your bereavement and leave you only the cherished memory of the loved and lost and the solemn pride that must be yours to have laid so costly a sacrifice upon the altar of freedom.